And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, talented musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Name me the final number, the highest, the greatest. But that's absurd. If the number of numbers is infinite, how can there be a final number? Then how can you speak of a final revolution? There is no final one. Revolutions are infinite. Yevgeny Zamyatin from his novel We. Also the quote that appears at the top of today's manifesto. On literature, revolution, entropy, and other matters. You got to love a a writer who quotes himself uh, to kick off his manifesto. You certainly do. And Zamyatin, there's a lot to love. Probably best known for uh, We, which is the dystopic novel set in the future um, and full of nameless characters known only by their numbers Influenced basically every dystopian novel of the 20th century. So this sort of like perfectly rational, ordered society. uh, Uh, Perfectly rational, ordered, totalitarian, monstrosity. Feels very – particularly like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World feels like a a better, honestly, descendant of of this book. But Um, I don't know about better. Huxley claimed he'd never read We – Mm-hmm. Orwell acknowledged that he'd read We prior yeah. to writing 1984. Um, I forget there's some other stuff. Uh, I think Huxley's claim was that he was writing um, in response to H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. Or, I can't remember it exactly, but he denied having read We. Um, a dubious claim, but the fact we'll that allow he felt it. he had to deny it. I yeah, think right. <clears throat> Conrad said he'd never read Dostoevsky, so. You know, take that for what it's worth. Um, but it's very much worth reading. Zamyatin's a, an interesting stylist. Um, as you'll see also in the manifesto, the prose is uh, is is distinctive. Well, he was interested. I mean, he was influenced by H.G. Wells as, as well. He's a Russian writer. But he lived in England. Um, and like Taylor, the efficiency expert, is a big yeah. kind of uh, note in we. Um, went back to Russia. He actually ended up writing Stalin and asking if he could leave. Which Stalin granted. Yeah, which Stalin granted. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, – I forget. Somebody spoke on his behalf. But I think the it was letter, Gorky. Yeah, Gorky spoke on his behalf. But the letter to Stalin says something along the lines of, you know, I – I can't live like a writer in this place, this hellscape you've created. But yes, Amiatin was in England during the First World War, um, and he was actually a member of what's, what was called the Old Party Guard, which is basically the, the pre-October Revolution um, communists or the, the old Bolshevik Party. 
prior to the um, October Revolution of 1917. He returns in time for the October Revolution, and he writes in um, his autobiography, which actually appears in the collection of essays that we've taken his manifesto from, um, which is called A Soviet Heretic. At the beginning of that, there's a short autobiography in which Zamyatin writes... I regret that I did not see the February Revolution and know only the October Revolution. I returned to Petersburg, past German submarines, in a ship with lights out, wearing a life belt all the time, just in time for October. This is the same as never having been in love and waking up one morning already married for ten years or so. So, you know, the the February Revolution was the initial... Um, revolution overthrow, um, and then the October Revolution is the the Bolshevik Revolution, where they seize power from the the Mensheviks, who are actually the majority. But that's a, a different story for another time. So the October Revolution is when the Communist Party, as we understand it now, uh, the Bolshevik wing of the Communist Party, Leninist Bolshevik wing of the Communist Party, consolidates its power. And Zamyatin, despite being a member of the old Party Guard increasingly grows to view the Leninist communist state as a totalitarian monstrosity. And uh, this is reflected in writing um, both in, in the, the prose and the manifestos and also in we. And he also just, you know, he's not the sort of person who could have ever have fit um, in that, you know, sort of towed that line. You know, you read a writer like Gorky who he – you know, he refers to as one of the greats of, of Russian realism. I don't think anybody really considers Gorky that right now. But, like, you know, Gorky's shtick as a writer was very much in keeping with a sort of, you know, uh, Soviet ethos and actually feels really constrained in that way, whereas Amyatin is... is uh, there's a bit in another essay of his, um, I, am not, uh, I Am Afraid, where he writes... True literature can only exist when it is created not by diligent and reliable officials, but by madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics. And, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, he, 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 you know, Gorky was, I think, a lot closer to the diligent and reliable official, but uh, Gorky also protected a lot of uh, madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics while he could. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's hard to say who is going to um, who is going to murder the impulses in themselves that would trouble their commitment to the revolution, you know, or who's going to be able to suppress it, who's going to be unable. You think, you know, in retrospect, it's always clear this guy was never going to submit, or or she was she was always going to to be a Stalinist. But you know, I, I don't know. I, I I'm not sure. It's it's. Um, so predetermined based on disposition, I think some of it's contingent. You know, Mayakovsky is somebody who you read the early stuff, you'd think uh, you might not anticipate how much of a, a slavish, um, you know, slavish party uh, apparatchik he'd become in the poetry. Yeah, there's um, a German uh, scholar Simon Unger who uh, had started out doing this analysis of. German intellectuals uh, leading up into the Nazi period and he wanted to see basically kind of what ideas or what kind of um, 
types of factors would lead somebody to, you know, being a Nazi versus not. And they ended up finding that um, there was no real reliable way that you could figure that out because, you know, some people would sort of flexibly adapt their ideological commitments to the new sort of power regime um, and other people who, you know, in some ways you would think of as being, you know, proto-fascist ready to be on board um, would would be – Precisely, the people who you know, some quirk of their personality yeah. just yeah. The great book on this is uh, Alistair Hamilton's *The Appeal of Fascism*. Mm-hmm. And before we get to Zamyatin, the one thing <laughs> Hamilton makes very clear in *The Appeal of Fascism* is that artists and intellectuals you can look to as being the early adopters <laughs> of fascism. You know, <laughs> really the early adopters of fascism before it becomes. You know, any kind of uh, lower middle class mass movement, uh, that's the vanguard. But Zamyatin, just to set set the stage a bit more, so uh, he writes this, I believe it's in 1923, right, when he writes this manifesto on literature, revolution, entropy, and other matters. And that's shortly after the October Revolution, um, already, uh, you know, well into the early years of the Soviet state, but it's also a moment when the manifesto as a form is sort of at the tail end of its first real flowering. The manifesto, this is the decade of the manifesto immediately before and after the First World War is when the modern manifesto is born. Uh, The futurist manifesto, the uh, the Vorticist Manifesto will come later, but there, there are a thousand manifestos being written in this time, all of them preaching, you know, some kind of revolutionary truth, an artistic revolution, a, a revolution in sensibility and in, in politics and all of the above. But this is when it's all happening and they bleed into each other. So the the artistic manifestos and the political manifestos, as I think the Zamitin demonstrates, are are they're not distinct categories necessarily. Right. And science is bleeding into science and math. They're, they're all bleeding into each other. In a sense, the idea of revolutionary truth is that it subsumes all other forms of truth into itself. And so that's that's the the period in which Zamitin is operating. So the manifesto opens with, ask point blank, what is revolution? And his initial answer, and this sort of goes um, you know, back to science and all these things are colliding. He says, two dead dark stars collide with an inaudible deafening crash and light a new star. This is revolution. Um, and he has this idea that um, – you know, as soon as you create something new with a revolution, you have this sort of release of energy and light and excitement, and it immediately become become uh, starts calcifying right into into dogma, um, uh, which he calls interestingly uh, entropy. Right, instead, like this kind of codification, you know, which you think of sort of firming classifications and and organizing things, he associates with uh, with uh, 
Entropy says, when the flaming, seething sphere in science, religion, social life, art cools, the fiery magma becomes coated with dogma, a rigid, ossified, motionless crust. Dogmatization in science, religion, social life, or art is the entropy of thought. Instead of Galileo's be still, it burns, they're dispassionate, but still it turns, they're dispassionate computations in a well-heated room in an observatory. On the Galileos, the epigones, epigones, I don't know how to pronounce that word, build their own structures slowly, bit by bit, like corals. Yeah, that's the the line I like from that. Mm. Bit by bit, like corals. Not a... Not a flattering description to be compared to a coral. Right. Though he also, for the uh, for the revolutionaries themselves, he points out, explosions are not very comfortable, and therefore the exploders, the heretics, are justly exterminated by fire, by axes, by words. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because to come back to what we were talking about a second ago, you could read this and easily see this as being a affirmation of... You know, Soviet revolutionary truth. You know, there are not that easily, especially not the fact that it's. I mean, it opens with that thing about there's no final revolution. I don't think that's true. You're right. Like you're right. You're all. right. And in 1923, it would be too late for something this sort of wild to yeah. be acceptable to the party. You're right, but there is a. It, it's not ultimately what it means, but it's a gnomic document, right? Yeah. It's trying to to in- interpose physics and non-Euclidean geometry into literary and moral truth. And so there's a, a kind of, you know, it's open to interpretation to say the least. But there is a, there's an element here, as that line you just read, demonstrates about how revolutionaries are burned by fire, that the only way to preserve revolution, which is essentially the only thing worth doing, is to keep blowing things up over and over again. So you're right. uh, I'm wrong to say that this would have been at all acceptable to any institutional party. Do I really look like a guy with a plan? You know what I am? I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. You know, I just do things. But there's a, you know, kind of almost Trotskyite permanent revolution. Yeah. Um, But what he means by revolution is first confrontation with truth. He means by revolution a desperate, dying, mortal, final stab at truth or a first stab at truth in a naive childish way and he he talks specifically about children and about how philosophers of genius children and the people are equally wise because they ask equally foolish questions foolish to a civilized man who is a well-furnished european apartment with an excellent toilet and a well-furnished dogma yeah yeah, I, I feel the child part of that more than the people part of that. You know, I um, but the the child part of it reminds me of Isaiah Berlin has a great book called Russian Thinkers that you know goes through. Uh, I think it starts with Herzen, but it goes through nineteenth uh, century uh, Russian political uh, philosophers and, and intellectuals, and there's. A line I've always remembered where he's talking about these what are essentially bullshit sessions with Russian revolutionary philosophers in the 19th century 
sitting around in these uh, the ferment of these intellectual circles trying to get at the truth. And this is still in czarist Russia. And so there's a, you know, there's a, a danger in this and there's a, a, a real risk involved. And what they're trying to do is not stop at the penultimate stage yeah. where they might cool off and immediately turn into entropy. They're trying to go all the way to the red hot core to force themselves to go to first principles and beyond. And the, the phrase that Berlin uses, which he takes, I think, from the maybe from Hertz and himself is suffering the truth. They yeah. want to suffer the truth. And so it's going to burn. And Zamyatin saying it's not just going to burn. It's going to blow up. And it needs to perpetually do that. And and he's, you know, you, you, you mentioned, you know, trying to get to first principles, you know, he sort of delights in suggesting that there, that you'll never have a first principle that you can actually rest on, right? So he says, you know, he talks about um, uh, there are people who are dead alive and people who are alive alive. The dead alive also write walk, speak, act, but they make no mistakes. Only machines make no mistakes and they produce only dead things. The alive alive are constantly in error, in search, in questions, in torment. Let the answers be wrong. Let the philosophy be mistaken. Errors are more valuable than truths. Truth is of the machine. Error is alive. Truth reassures. Error disturbs. Dealing with answered questions is the privilege of brains constructed like a cow's stomach, which, as we know, is built to digest cud. Yeah, we have to be wrong mm-hmm. and we have to continually risk being wrong. And as soon as we privilege being right over the question, we're dead alive. Yeah. Or is it alive dead? We're dead inside, basically. I mean, there's, there's a way in which this fits in with, you know, from last episode, um, the Baldwin, uh, you know, our glittering mechanical civilization. Yeah. And, you know, when I was reading this, uh, you know, about how everything is sort of needs to be part of this dialectical process. Today's truths become errors tomorrow. There's no final number. There's no final revolution. Um, do you know the poet um, uh, Lawrence Joseph? No. Really fantastic. He's a new book of poems called So Where Are We? And uh, there's one poem in parentheses um, uh, where the final section is uh, – and he's a lawyer by profession – I'm speaking of a law now, understand, that point at which bodies locked in cages become ontology, the point at which structures of cruelty, force, war become ontology. The analog is what I believe in, the reconstruction of the phenomenology of perception not according to a machine more now for the imagination to affix than ever before. Um, And I think of that sort of, you know, (laughs) the – the emphasis on the the analog versus the the product of the machine mm-hmm. um, and the clarity that it gives. Uh, yeah, so I was just mentioning to Phil here that uh, I just finished a long piece on uh, artificial intelligence and war, uh, pegged to a new book by a King's College professor, London King's College professor named Kenneth Payne, called "Strategy, Evolution, and War." from apes to artificial intelligence, something like that. Um, Strategy, evolution, and war is definitely the the main title. And, you know, I'm thinking 
through this question of machine intelligence and of how much value there is in being wrong and how that applies in the highest stakes possible arena. There's another book on AI and war whose title is Army of None. Yeah, Paul Schar. I I haven't read yet, but that's a fantastic title. Yeah, it's very good. So Schar, Paul Schar, who wrote that, I think he's at uh, the Center for New American Security now. Mm -hmm. He's a former Army Ranger worked at DOD where he drafted the Department of Defense or helped draft the Department of Defense policy on what are called autonomous weapon systems, AWS. Um, And autonomous weapon systems are weapons that are able both to acquire targets and the term of art would be engage targets, but that means kill. Mm -hmm. So both to acquire targets and kill um, or destroy as the case may be, independent of human intervention. Now, that doesn't um, – we don't employ these, depending on how you, where you draw your lines. We don't employ these yet because they're not legal. There has to be a human somewhere in the decision cycle. But the, the issue is, right, and, and this relates to this question of what kind of intelligence machines can produce as the – decision-making machines, so-called decision-making machines, improve and become faster, the possibility of both employing them and maintaining human supervision over them will dwindle to nothing because they'll operate at speeds that we're incapable, where we can't intercede because it happens too fast for us to intercede on all, let's say, but the biggest questions. So, Will a machine, will an AI machine launch a nuclear weapon without a person being involved? No. Uh, very unlikely to happen because matters that important, likely there will still be some sort of human check on it, depending on how the future goes, you know. But at thousands of stages short of nuclear weapons, we'll accept, we will likely accept the risk. Now, none of the, you know, the future is still being written, et cetera, et cetera. But this is the direction where this is leading, right? Take, for instance, okay, the machine that just beat the human master at Go. Now, Go is an ancient Chinese board game, strategy board game, many factors, more complex than chess. And, you know, years ago, Deep Blue, um, had beat beat Kasparov, or was Deep Blue the Jeopardy one? No, Deep Blue was the chess-playing computer, right? Years ago, computers beat humans at chess, um, but go, go, they were never going to win at go, right? Or it would take a century. It's like five years later, and now they're winning at go. But the most incredible thing is that, or the incredible um, and frightening thing, is that even the designers of the Go-playing AI, and the Go-playing AI is based on a a kind of AI architecture called artificial neural networks um, that sort of model uh, the actual neural architecture in the brain. And and sort of the way to think of it conceptually is that they build intelligence from the smallest level up. So rather than starting with big categorical meaning and operating, uh, making decisions through that categorical meeting, their cognition starts with the, at the smallest level and then builds up from it. Anyway, those AI machines, the way they win at Go is unknown even to their authors. Right. 
the designers of those AI machines can't tell you why they make the, mach- the, the decisions that they do. Their strategy within the game becomes unintelligible to the authors of the machines. Now, that's a, a novelty. It's interesting as a technical question, but they are producing consequences in the world. If Samyatin's right, that machines can only produce dead things, that correctness is not a path towards a greater humanity or towards a better life, but is a form of living death. We are producing hyper-efficient correctness machines that we're not even capable of understanding and will very soon outstrip our ability to meaningfully impact in their interactions with the physical world. What say you to that, Phil? <laughs> I, um... You know the, the Russian chess master Mikhail Tal? Tal? Doesn't sound Russian, but no. Or, uh, wait, no. What is he... He might not be Russian, and then somebody's going to be mad at me. Uh, that's right. Mikhail um, is Russian enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, Latvian. Mm. <clears throat> uh, he once said of his strategy... Uh, or how to play well at chess. You must take your opponent into a deep, dark forest where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for one. That's beautiful. <laughs> that The machine that will beat him at chess yeah. could care less right. for the poetry of his sentiments, which is to say, as my, I care or, about or, the poetry of his sentiments, but I, only I can care. So if they're worth anything... I have to care about them. And and yet the machine wins. Yeah, but but what's winning? Right? Maybe the thing is going into the forest and making the path so narrow that only you can exit. And winning is a is a conceptual trap. Winning in the sense of in other words, a, a, a win without an animating spirit is the is a a a, a meretricious is the appearance of a win without the substance. Well, is there yeah is there art in in a machine? Point, no, right? No, machines can't make art. They can only make dead things. They can only make dead things. Humans make art. So whatever a machine makes is not art. Mirror data makes a man. A and C and T and G. The alphabet of you. All from four symbols. I'm only two. One and zero. Half as much, but twice as elegant, sweetheart. I think of, um, you know, the, the oh, what's the, the comedian? Thank Mitch you. Hedberg uh, talking about, like, playing tennis against a wall it's like man they're relentless (laughs) (laughs) the guy is unbelievably funny (laughs) damn was he funny yeah he was amazing um do you ever hear his ballpoint pen routine? It's like the. F- I, I, I bought an expensive pen because I got sick of losing. Because oh, I because I was because I'm always losing pens and I got sick of not caring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think of that all the time. <laughs> um, we could just trade Mitch Hedberg right. for a while. Zamiatin. Yeah. So, 
So he. Yeah, so so, so yeah. you you have you have a, a, a kind of cultural practice, right? A mm. game, a chess mm. game, right? In which the entire purpose of it, like the winning a chess game, is inherently meaningless, right? Like there's no. You only do it for the the joy and the pleasure and the art of the game itself, and then you build a machine that can do it better. And I think. Or not just for the joy, but for the human pursuit, for yeah. the experience of existence. Zamiatin says, if there were anything fixed in nature, if there were truths, all of this would, of course, be wrong. But fortunately, all truths are erroneous. This is the very essence of the dialectical process. Today's truths become errors tomorrow. There is no final number. This truth, the only one, is for the strong alone. Weak-nerved minds insist on a finite universe, a last number. They need, in Nietzsche's words, the crutches of certainty. The weak-nerved lack the strength to include themselves in the dialectic syllogism. True, this is difficult, but it is the very thing that Einstein succeeded in doing. He managed to remember that he, Einstein, observing motion with a watch in hand, was also moving. He succeeded in looking at the movement of the earth from outside. So, there's a, you know, he's talking about the dialectical truth in relation to dialectical materialism, and there's a Marxist political aspect to this that, or a Hegelian Marx by way of Hegel, uh, aspect of this, but there's there's also an idea that the the truth is a, a matter of tension. That if it's if it's not vulnerable by self awareness, if it's not charging into other truths, if it's not in some kind of confrontation with other truths, if it presumes that there is a that it's reached an Archimedean point in which everything fits together perfectly, you know, it, it's, it's a void, that the truth has to be in some kind of conflict, some dynamic state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he immediately applies that to literature, right? Mm. Um, and tries to set up these kind of, you know, dialectical... Um, Division. So he he says, you know, the formal character of a living literature is the same as its inner character. It denies verities. It denies what everyone knows and what I have known until this moment. And then he says, you know, the broad highway of Russian literature, worn to a high gloss by the giant wheels of Tolstoy, Gorky, and Chekhov, is realism, daily life. Hence, we must turn away from daily life. The tracks canonized and sanctified by Bloch, Sologub, and Belly are the tracks of symbolism, which renounce daily life. Hence, we must turn toward daily life. Absurd, yes. The intersection of parallel lines is also absurd, but it is absurd only in the canonic plane geometry of Euclid. In non-Euclidean geometry, it is an axiom. All you need is to cease to be plane to rise above the plane. Um, yeah, but – and that is, uh, you know, a, a stunning, sparkling insight, very new to the 20th century. Not at all how – Dante would have understood the purpose of literature or, or Shakespeare would have understood art or for that matter how uh, even 
you know, Gogol perhaps uh, would have understood it. This is a, a very new way of thinking about the nature and purpose of art. And it's and it is a, a way of seeing art and truth as always creating their own truth rather than discovering truth, rather than enriching or enlivening pre-existing truth. It's, it's godlike. It's, um, you know, it is godlike. And it, the, the Nietzschean invocation here it's not accidental in this mm-hmm. regard it's the idea that there is no pre-existing truth uh, that that uh, that can simply be absorbed and remain alive it has to be invented it has to be claimed for oneself and that's we can get into what you might call the drawbacks of that mm-hmm. view later but the first thing to say about it is that it's very new and this kind of perpetual, like, you have to reject what was in the past, um, you know, um, that there's always some sort of way of, of kind of stepping outside whatever the, the, the different sort of categories and options that you feel like are available to you, um, which I think is, is – is, I mean it's true for I think good – Good literature, good writing, right? Like if you're writing about a subject, I mean, for myself, I feel like if I'm going to write about something, it is important for me to know part of the tradition within which I'm writing, um, the things that have been written about similar things before, because I don't want to do that, right? Um, because I can't, you know, cause, because if because if I am recreating an argument or uh, – artistic perspective on something that has been done before, then the work will be perhaps pleasing, but also dead. Yeah. But what's the difference between that and the pursuit of novelty? Categorically, right? Like, I understand. I could give you a sentimental distinction, sure. but what's the real distinction? Novelty is doing something new for the sake of the, new, the newness, right? Novelty is just sort of the pursuit of the cheaply different, Right. Um, I think that uh, you don't you don't try and write something new or different simply to be different. You try and write something new because the you know so this great Vietnam fiction. Right. You're trying to think about you know in my case writing the last book like you know more in the 21st century these particular wars this particular social world in which we find ourselves is radically different. The information ideas flowing around, you know, uh, are radically different. And the old forms are useful but not sufficient for dealing with whatever it is that is vital and alive about our moment. And so you have to write something new in order to write, in order to grope honestly towards whatever your subject is in the present moment. You can't rest on the old descriptions even though you can use them. I think the second half of that is much more valuable than the first because the first half saying that you know novelty involves the pursuit of the different for its own sake yeah. becomes or cheaply different you yeah. say so a value judgment what's cheaply different and it becomes 
difficult to parse when you're suggesting that the worthwhile has to be different, that a degree of difference is a prerequisite for something to be worthwhile. So you are, you are pursuing something different in the sense that the quality of difference will let you know if you've found what you're looking for. But the second half, that assuming, right, that assuming that there is a infinite variety in existence and that things have qualities that are particular to themselves, to their age, that people are unique and that while there are patterns, pre-existing patterns, emergent patterns, there's also vast, limitless degree of differentiation and that what you're pursuing is the particular truth in that differentiation, um, in, you know, the, the truth in the particular is to me just thinking, how would I know I'm do? How would I know I'm on the right track as a heuristic? It's more valuable to me as a heuristic in that way, because it gives me a sense of, in, mm-hmm. a, in a positive sense of what I'm looking for. I asked the, uh, the writer Alexander Heyman once, um, <laughs> uh, given that, um, there's a lot of sort of sentimentality that surrounds a lot of the subjects that he writes about, right? I mean, sentimentality in the sense that we talked about in the last episode. Uh, how he avoided, you know, what, what his bullshit detector was. And he said he didn't have a bullshit detector so much as a difficulty detector, right? Um, that, you know, if, if his approach to the subject felt too kind of comfortable, easy, pleasant, it probably, he probably wasn't, you know, pushing himself towards the more uh, vital truths, and that goes in line with with Samyatin because he, he, there's towards the very end he says, you know, the ordinary, the banal is of course simpler, more pleasant, more comfortable. No revolution, no heresy is comfortable or easy, for it is a leap, it is a break in the smooth evolutionary curve, and a break is a wound, a pain. But the wound is necessary. Most of mankind suffers from hereditary sleeping sickness, and victims of this sickness, entropy, must not be allowed to sleep, or it will be their final sleep death. Yeah, beware entropy. You know, do you remember um, Veterans Speak Out? No. Okay. We did. Phil, myself, Oh, the, you're talking about the, 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 the KGB readings? I am talking yeah. about the KGB readings. So shortly after Phil and I met, which was in, what, 2009? Something like that? Yeah, 2009. 2009 in this free uh, writing workshop for veterans that NYU put on where we also met Matt Gallagher, Royce Granton, Perry O'Brien, Maurice DeCall, yeah. um, a bunch of other people. Uh, shortly after we met, I organized, and this was, I think I'd, I'd been back from Iraq for a few years. We were all more or less within three or four years of being back from wherever we'd gone. Um, I organized a reading series at the KGB bar, which is this kind of Soviet kitsch literary bar in the East Village, kind of a New York institution. Um, it's a great bar. It is a great bar. I used to get drunk with the owner and um, Dennis, get drunk and smoke cigarettes in the back. Those are uh, those were the years. Good times. And, uh, and I organized this reading series called Veterans Speak Out. And the first one we did was Veterans Speak Out on 
the singularity, entropy, ecstatic blindness, and the death of the bartender. <laughs> and I cringe a bit looking at that. Um, you know, it's the sort of thing that to me at the time seemed uh, unbelievably clever and, uh, you know, somehow mischievous. And, and uh, the next one we did was just to give you a an idea of the vein these things were in. The next one was veterans speak out on pharmacology, <laughs> selfhood, and negligent discharge. And the joke, which was never funny, was that, uh, you know, veterans speak out. You expect it to be on something relating to war or politics. And, and here we were speaking out on the most abstract uh, recondite matters we could get our hands on. It was a way, I guess, of saying, I, I mean, this is all kind of post hoc rationalization. I think it was probably just a ploy for uh, a gig at KGB at the time. But I think, you know, it, it seems also it, it was about saying we're going to leverage this moral and social, moral authority and social status we have as veterans to talk about the things we want to talk about. And sort of shrug off the, the 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 there's like this kind of mantle that society puts on you where you're where you, you have an elevated position, but you're also supposed to say a certain set of things. Right. right. The truth is, though, uh, I realize in retrospect, I didn't want to think about those things at the time. It wasn't yeah. just that I didn't want to say them, and at the time, I had. I thought of it in this sort of high-minded and, and I think mildly self-righteous way, certainly self-serious, but mildly self-righteous way, about uh, refusing to, to fit into this veteran mold. But the more fundamental truth is that I wanted to avoid the subject at the time for my own reasons. Um, but it, there is this uh, layers of, you know, or, or several resonances with Samyatin there. Funny that it happened at the KGB bar, though not shocking if you know the tiny um, and fairly uh, sterile New York literary scene. There ain't that many places where it was going to happen. But entropy was on my mind, certainly. And um, and I wanted to I wanted to be able to write about Anything I wanted to write about to seek out revolutionary truth, revolutionary at least in a, a personal sense, uh, revolutionary in the in the sense that Samyatin means it in part for for artists in that I wanted not to rest in comfortable truths, not to accept dogmas, but you know. Some of the the most challenging things would have been the most familiar, and mm -hmm. you know it's 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 hard to hard to to parse it all. But uh, you know that pursuit of higher, greater truths uh, can be a deflection or a misdirection that allows one to avoid dealing with more immediate more familiar, but nevertheless, every bit as vital matters, matters that, uh, that are every bit as vital. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, the saying, you know, the courage that it takes to see what's in front of one's, one's nose. Um, so should we talk about 
you know, what would happen if we took, if we put this this into practice? Yeah. I mean, I suppose actually, in, in a way, that is, you know, you're you're making fun of it now, but I think actually, being with you guys and being part of a group of veterans for whom there was a distrust of that authority I think was useful for all of us in sort of thinking about how to talk about these issues and not settling on kind of comfortable calcified dogmatic ways of talking about about war um, you know uh, it was certainly the subject I intended to write about but uh, you know even in just kind of <laughs> with the titles you know, having a little bit of fun uh, with the idea of what veterans are supposed to speak out on was, uh, I think, you know, anyway, valuable for me. Yeah, that's what I was making fun of was the titles and the KGB reading. I'm not um, – I, I wouldn't apply that same um, that same sort of uh, retrospective judgment to the to the writing workshop or to – um, my friendship and uh, what would you call it, writerly interaction with you guys. I, I don't, I thought, you know, I felt that was serious stuff at the time and I think it's serious stuff now and I, and I uh, have nothing but uh, a fairly sentimental um, view of all that. Uh, sentimental, but, but hopefully not dishonest. But um, no, that, that was very valuable to me and meaningful. You also tried to box me after pretty much every one of those readings. I got hints. And um, <laughs> anybody who wants to find out can get the fair one. So, um, But uh, not anybody who wants to find out. <laughs> t- up to super middleweights could get these hands. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, though— look, look, Jake, you need yeah. the strength to wound yourself. Right. Yeah. I have the strength to familiar. <laughs> to, to wound oneself is difficult, even dangerous. But for those who are alive, living today as yesterday and yesterday as today is still more difficult. Okay, but what would this look like implemented not wounding oneself, right? What would this actually look like implemented in the world in a word? Dogma. If you were to implement Zamyatin's revolutionary truth, if you were to implement it, it would would give away to entropy it would cool off it would become dogma it's it's unimplementable as a program it is only pursuable as a spirit of truth as a it's only a pursuit it's only an a restlessness it's only a infinite ineradicable restlessness that doesn't need to be implemented because as long as there are people it persists yeah I think I mean I just think that it's it's a description of <laughs> of life, right? I mean it's it, the the what we look back on and, and sort of draw on from the past are are only those things that are constantly reinventing form, kind of attacking the old structures of belief. Um, so, in a way, it just it happens naturally because that's what humans do. When we look back, you're saying historically when we look back or when we look back in our own lives? Both. I think that – but, you know, if you're looking at the kind of the progress of art, 
the progress of kind of political ideas, the moral ideas, whatever. Um, the, these kind of – this constant churn uh, is is just part of the human practice, right? We don't we don't settle we don't settle on on received truth. So rather, most people have a kind of fixed set of truths, and there are always people sort of trying to, you know, kick down the doors of 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 you know the dogmatic fortresses that they see around them. So after you and I read Vico last year, um, which I still think about fairly often. <laughs> You're laughing. But, no, I, I let – there's a – I say at Berlin talks about um, Vico's uh, – Vico's great and he's worth reading but there's a line of, of Berlin. You would you would sold him to me as being like – I think you'd like compared him to Tolstoy as Vico? a writer. Yes. No. Yes, you did. And um, he's brilliant and kind of kind of his, his – Say Vico is like this sort of analysis of culture, right, and, and cultural history, culture and, and history, yeah, a, yeah, the new science, um, and Renaissance it, thinker, uh, sort of, but like wildly yeah. ahead of his time, wildly ahead in, of his time in, yeah. in, in terms of his um, philosophy of history, philosophy of history, yeah. Um, Isaiah Berlin has this line about you know Vico not being much read, and he's like. Um, Though, of course, the reason that he's not much read is because he is unreadable. Uh, <laughs> and so when I started reading Vico, I was just like, oh, my God, this this is not Tolstoy. No, no, I don't think – I would never have compared him to Tolstoy. That must have been uh, some other cat you were reading Vico with on the side. But, uh, no, after we read that, though, I had this idea. I was thinking about cyclical history and about the model for cyclical history, and I was thinking about – the wheel, and that the way to understand cyclical history is is a wheel on a slope. It's a wheel on the slope of time. So it's not a stationary revolution. It's not a loom that turns in place. It's a wheel that rolls forward, backwards, who knows. But the wheel runs on the slope of time. What's that line from Proust? There's some gorgeous line in Proust about the slope of time, the fatal the fatal slope of time, um, I think from the first book. But that, that wheel is turning, but it's also moving. And you know, the revolution returns. It, uh, it moves forward and it recurs at the same time. I've, uh, I've drifted off into esoteric territory here, but I want to get that model of cyclical history on the record as being my own, I'll have to, I'll have to patent that. But uh, a wheel on the fatal slope of time. Okay. <laughs> the fatal slope of time. Yeah. No, no, that's uh, that's the Proust line. The fatal okay. slope of time. So you're laughing at Proust. I am. All right, tough guy. <laughs> um, and you're entitled. Okay, so the art for this week. We're going to try something different. Um, <laughs> since it's a podcast, we figured we <laughs> we do two paintings. Uh, Kand- Kandinsky composition number six and composition number seven. Okay, um, I'm just going to read a bit of the Wikipedia <laughs> on Kandinsky instead of lightly 
rephrasing it and acting as if I'm summoning it from memory, the more honest revolutionary thing will just be to read directly from Wikipedia. So um, Kandinsky's credited with – all right. So he's born 1866, I think in Odessa, uh, but he's Russian, ethnically Russian. Oh, no. He's born in Russia in 1866. He dies in 1944. He's a Russian painter and art theorist credited with painting one of the first recognized purely abstract works. And if you've ever seen Kandinsky, he's known for these very vivid, colorful, geometric, abstract geometric compositions full of vivid colors and dynamic shapes. Um, And one of the first abstract artists, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, he goes to Munich. He comes back in 1914. Well, he keeps having to flee places. So he has to flee right. Russia. Then, he, you know, some of his work is seized by the Nazis and, like, there's an exhibit of uh, degenerate art that they then destroy. He has to flee. You know, he just – he kind of keeps needing to to leave various places right, uh, for political uh, reasons. He comes back to uh, Russia after having fled post-revolution. Um, and he's like a minister in some art department for a while. However, I'm quoting now, however, by then his spiritual outlook was foreign to the argumentative materialism of Soviet society. Opportunities beckoned in Germany. So he goes there in 1920 and, uh, he's a Bauhaus. That's the other thing to say about him. He's, uh, famously part of the early Bauhaus school. And I think that's where he develops his blue rider stuff or is that before? Um, but anyway, he is a, very influential, seminal, early abstract painter. And he goes through a number of periods, uh, you know, different kinds of compositions. And, and it's important that even though – so the work is abstract. There's, you know, there are no recognizable figure, figures in his kind of mature work. But he's it's – not, it's not a formal game, right? I mean um, he – has a this actually a religious sensibility and spiritual sensibility that is deeply important to him and, and important to a lot of um, you know abstract artists uh, Rothko uh, uh, who did these you know kind of most famous for these kind of floating color square paintings once said I'm not an abstractionist I'm not interested in the relationship of color or form or anything else I'm interested only in expressing basic human emotions tragedy ecstasy doom and so on. The people who weep before my pictures are having the same religious experience I had when I painted them. And if you, as you say, are moved only by their color relationships, then you miss the point. Yeah, no, this is an experiment uh, or a pursuit of the nature of truth and the most vivid expression of the true nature of existence. And it goes back to what you were talking about with, you know, novelty versus truth and it and it connects to Zamyatin in in 50 different ways. But one of them is that they are both attempting to grapple with the consequences, the implications of new science, of Mm. theoretical physics that are developing at the time, of non-Euclidean geometry. I thought you were talking about Vico for a second. No, no, no. No no Vico. No, not that new science. The, the science mm-hmm. of the 20th century, Zamyatin is trying to deal with this very mm-hmm. directly, right? This, he's in a post-Newtonian uh, world. He references yeah. Einstein directly. We, we're, we're in the relativity 
universe already, and Kandinsky is grappling with something similar. But and also, you know, the, the, he describes seeing I forget the painter. It was Haystacks, right? Uh, impressionist, um, and where the kind of way that they were painted was such that you could almost barely tell what the object was, and yet he was still having a emotional reaction to this and that was a, a kind of um, kind of breaking point for him and realizing what you could do and he was interested in he's often comparing painting in his style to music right uh, and deliberately so the two paintings that we're talking about are called compositions um, and you know he, he, he talked that in um, uh, the spiritual and art which is a book that he wrote he says there are you know, three different types of, of, of paintings. Uh, one, a direct impression of outward nature expressed in purely artistic form. This I call an impression. And then he has another type of painting, a largely unconscious, spontaneous expression of inner character, the non-material nature. This I call improvisation. And the third is, is um, an expression of a slowly formed inner feeling which comes to utterance only after long maturing. This I call a composition. Uh, and so the reason that that music is so um is is kind of a perfect reference for him is you know it's it's not as though a a beautiful piece of music is necessarily about anything and you you already quoted uh proust so uh, i'll give you a little bit more proust this is from swan's way the field open to the musician is not a miserable scale of seven notes, but an immeasurable keyboard still almost entirely unknown on which here and there only separated by shadows thick and unexplored, a few of the millions of keys of tenderness, of passion, of courage, of serenity which compose it, each as different from the others as one universe from another universe, have been found by a few great artists who do us the service by awakening in us something corresponding to the theme they have discovered of showing us what richness, what variety is hidden unbeknownst to us within that great un penetrated and disheartening darkness of our soul which we take for emptiness and nothingness and Kandinsky is trying to do the same thing with form and color yeah yeah I I think that is not a it's not a formal experiment he's not he's not experimenting with form for the sake of form he's trying to discover true form sacred form and he's saying um, it's not a Gnostic thing. He's saying that, that some form is illusion, but it's not in a, a Gnostic way because there's not a hidden truth yeah. that only the elect recognize. There is an emergent truth that he is trying to surface. Right? So that for Kandinsky, and this comes out in the two theoretical works. What is it? The spiritual and art? Yeah. Is, uh, there's the spiritual and art, and then there's point and line to plane. And I'll, I'll read a few excerpts from point and line to plane in a second. But I think what's animating this is this sense that, you know, we discover your Kandinsky. Relativity upends your understanding of the physical world around you. To some extent, it's still new enough at the time that it's not dogma yet, right? If you're mm-hmm. a thinking person, you're a, a you're a you're an artist, intellectual, a Kandinsky at the time, grappling with these things. As Zamyatin, non-Euclidean geometry, re, you know, relativity—they're new enough. They haven't calcified into dogmas yet. 
they are violent attacks on the nature of the material world, on your sense of reality. How then do you paint? If this material world around you has been revealed not to operate according to these this dogma of Newtonian physics, but by these far more mysterious, less, let's say, immediately intuitive operations. Uh, I mean, we're not even at quantum physics yet, but how do you paint that? How do you paint in a way that expresses that? And there's a, this political upheaval at the same time that's disrupting established orders. And, and, uh, and that is what comes out here, especially in the first, in the first flourishing of all this, you know, of course, this attempt to recognize new forms becomes its own dogma. And, you know, this kind of abstraction becomes highly formalized, but man, there's so much life. We're looking at compositions six you, you, and you, seven. You, you want to describe? You, you describe. <laughs> you, oh, you picked these, man. I did. Yeah, some squiggles and some lines and colors. Um, All right, let's start with six. How about that? Well, six. Presumably, people will just while listening to this, unless they're out of range, will just look up paintings. Yeah, you true. can, but well, if you're driving or running or also just even don't if you're looking, do that, I don't think it, 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 it doesn't matter. Here, here's 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 <laughs> no, but what do you see when you look at this? What I see is um, a. So composition number six. Yeah. There is darkness around the edges, particularly the top left corner. Um, and then brightness in the center with bits of color, red, blue around the edges, um, uh, a sort of crescent moon shape, uh, lines coming out. Uh, it gets much more sort of uh, cluttered uh, with both more line, dark kind of black lines and squiggles and also different colors in the top right, uh, darkness at the very top right corner. There's this real clash of, of, of elements. There's a kind of um, like light and dark drama to the painting. It's yeah, not a settling much. painting, yeah. right? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's something much more uh, dynamic. Um, I see a ship exciting. in a storm. I see... Uh... Yeah, it, it, it gives you the same feeling of like a really dramatic actually nautical scene but without yeah. you know without without any of that but yeah it definitely has a, a sort of thundercloud but also these kind of really bright moments of light um i don't know it's it's, it's a no it's incredible they're bright moments of light at the same time the darkness the shadow you describe that's in the upper left corner mm-hmm. is almost like a source of light it's projecting yeah. darkness it's not a it's not just like a blotch of of black paint. It appears to be almost casting down into mm-hmm. the scene, and and it's textured as well. Yeah, the texture is incredible. So, looking at this composition number six, you you see, I think it's even more fully realized in seven. But you see it here as well, where there are these, you know, the planes. This this real depth to it. You mm-hmm. get the sense of perspective. Now, there is no vanishing point. Yeah. Right. This is not a Renaissance painting with a geometrically ordered perspective that uh, you know is arranged in reference to a, a vanishing point. Nevertheless, you know it's it's a kind of welter. It's it's perspectives all running into each other. The foreground is crashing into the background, mm-hmm. and they're 
They're roiling like waves. Um, but you see, I see here, I should say, all these, it's like an emergent complexity or, mm-hmm. or, or um, uh, you know, I see a serpent. There's a religious, there is a religious, like. There's a religious quality it, to it, it. it. You know, I look at it and I, it, it, it reminds me of some of like the, you know. Uh, Caravaggio, Chiaroscuro, like these, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of light shining down, right. illuminating yeah. in the darkness. Yeah. It feels like, you know, this is in 1913, so it's very easy to read kind of like emerging uh, violence, on the, uh, you know, you know, looking back with the perspective of history. And then these, you know, again, kind of bright moments swaddled with um, kind of calming colors but then you know bits of red and and, and yellow i don't know it's, it's it... i don't see shapes right i yeah. see forms in a deeper sense yeah. and a much abstract painting you know once what kandinsky's doing turns into a dogma which i think happens fairly quickly mm-hmm. um there are decades and decades of abstract paintings that come after this and i've seen many of them not for long, but I have my eyes have passed across them. That I, you know, they do nothing for me, and it's it's just it's point and line, but without plane, and and it is um, it's nothing. It's not more than the sum of its parts. I, I don't know. It's uh, there's something here that is really alive and. Yeah deeply expressive that comes out of uh, a attempt to paint from a new understanding of, of reality and spiritual existence. Well, I, there's one thing that's interesting. You know, he, he attacks the cubists in the spiritual uh, – in art. Mm. Uh, and he's talking about sort of a new grammar of painting that you need. Um, he says, such a grammar of painting can only be temporarily guessed at, and it, should it ever be achieved, it will not be not be uh, it will be not be not so much according to physical rules, which have so often been tried, and which today the cubists are trying, as according to the rules of the inner need, which are of the soul, right? And the um, uh, and he says, color directly influences the soul. Color is the keyboard. The eyes are the hammers. The soul is the piano with many strings. The artist is the hand that plays, touching one key or another purpose, purposefully to cause vibrations in the soul. And so there's a kind of, um, you know, pure abstraction quality to the cubist that he doesn't like, that where it feels dry. And it's um, in some ways like a game in terms of the way that it's related to an original ob- uh, object. And he's dispensing with all that and just saying – you know, if we think very seriously about how these things can move the soul without, you know, um, <laughs> and I think in order to be able to do that with with um, with so few rules, um, you know, you need you need to have skill of the highest order, which he does. Yeah, it, it's a non-objective approach to reality and to the expression of both. Uh, physical and spiritual reality. Do, do, should we go talk about number seven? Yeah, yeah. Let's go to number seven. This one I like a lot. I think I believe this is one of his most famous paintings, Composition Seven, and it is brighter certainly mm-hmm. than six. 
less uh, less roiling, less less brooding than six. Uh, more pastoral in a way. I mean, we should start by saying it's also a jumble of shapes and colors. Mm, and like, so <laughs> it's a lot of oranges and um, it, it, it kind of feels like they're they're more obviously sort of segments to the painting. Um, you know, there's there's like a, a a kind of cluster of shapes and and cross hatches in the center. Yeah, that kind of feel like they're moving forward uh, into like a, a point pointing at the top right corner. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then below that sort of almost triangle, there's a sort of almost circular shape uh, that has uh, kind of a calmer. You know, it's less busy, um, uh, more kind of rounded shapes inside of it. And then the very bottom is just a, 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 a bottom right corner is a field of, of orange. Um, so, yeah, it, it is mostly shapes made up, many shapes made up of lines and colors, many small shapes made mm-hmm. up of lines and colors that are arranged yeah. together into these larger shapes that then exist in these planes. Right. And sort of like harsh angles that then in the other sections of the, the painting are contrasted with very kind of calming... Curved lines. Curved lines. Yeah, yeah. Sweeps. But it, don't you get... I say don't you get... Do you get something pastoral from this? Uh, fields, yeah. the, the sun... Um, now, sunset, I, yeah. Yeah, sunset. Uh, right, dawn, uh, not dawn, twilight. Not not quite. What's the pre-twilight hour? Uh, dusk. It's it's surprising because it's very bright. There's a like a lot of oranges and yellows and and, and those kind of colors. Yeah. So and yet it actually has a kind of calming feel to it. Yeah. Um despite just a tremendous amount of energy. Yeah, it feels yeah. like is 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 kind of contained inside the painting. Yeah, it's right. There's a, a cyclonic energy in that the diagonal plane you're describing in the middle where the greatest concentration of shapes and yeah. and colors is is it's like a cyclone. Yeah. And but yet he somehow manages to balance it out. With serene. Kind of yeah. But even cool. that, right? Even that cyclone is serene is not the right word for it though. But it's it's not threatening. It's yeah. not uh, – it doesn't appear to be malign or even um, violent necessarily, but it's got this massive energy contained within it. So I had a, a brief um, failed experience as a graduate student. I made it a full semester. I did one semester at the uh, CUNY Graduate Center in New York, the City University of New York Graduate Center, and um, studying what? I was in uh, whatever the uh, I don't know. Liberal, you don't know? <laughs> I forget the name. It was the liberal Dance. arts. It was liberal arts. I was I was going. I was sort of figuring it out. The main thing was I had the what's called the post nine eleven GI Bill, which is the new. Uh, would you, the, Incredibly generous. A very, very financially rewarding um, payment to veterans to go to college, basically, which is tied. The payment, the amount of money you get, is based on the zip code of your school. So by going it, it, it to does you well to be in New York on Fifth Avenue. CUNY's yeah. on Fifth Avenue and Thirty Fourth Street. So there was a lot of money in it for me to go to graduate school, and I also, you know. Sort of wanted. I said, "Why not? You know, I'll see what's going on here." 
I went, I did one semester, I ended up going to Afghanistan, and so that threw off my uh, college career, which was not very promising anyway. But I took a class with, um, uh, now I'm going to forget his name, Wayne Poet, uh, Wayne Poet. I took a class with a famous <laughs> poet who I, I really liked. Wayne, Wayne Poet is my favorite at, poet. Uh, CUNY, uh, Wayne Kostenbaum. I'm embarrassed. I've forgotten his name, though I shouldn't be embarrassed. I'm sure he doesn't know who the hell I am. So, um, Or even Wayne. But uh, I really liked this class I took with him, which was on... I think it was on Emily Dickinson, maybe. I, I don't remember exactly. Oh, no, it was on, like, the line in poetry, poetic truth, poetry in the line. Mm-hmm. It had some great title that ended up not really reflecting on what the course was about, but was, but it was a great course. And Kostenbaum's a, a very good poet and was a, a really interesting professor. And we covered, we did some Dickinson, we did uh, Louis Bourgeois, um, and we did this... Kandinsky book, which was the successor to spirituality and art, mm-hmm. or art and spirituality, whatever the early theoretical work was, called Point and Line to Plane. And uh, you know, I remember in this class that I took with Kostenbaum, first of all, trying to keep myself open to new kinds of art and to be open-minded. I really, mm-hmm. you know, I have a sort of... Um, uh, you know, I can be closed-minded. I have a, um, what's the word for it? Strong opinions? Strong opinions. And I wanted, I wanted to, I had become dogmatic. I felt at the time, uh, and whatever it was then, my, my mid to late, I guess my late 20s, I, had, I felt that I had become dogmatic. I felt, uh, for instance, you know, I had my whole... 15-year jihad against memoirs. I, I thought that the <laughs> memoir boom was the worst thing ever. It had ruined literature, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And, and I had these ideas Augustine about... Augustine man started it. You know, and, and listen, I, Anatole Breuer's memoir is one of my, you know, it's like one of my top three favorite books of all time, Kafka's The Rage. There are a number of memoirs I like. There was like the mid-'90s memoir boom, with that moron Fry, James uh, Fry, and all these cheap exhibitionists um, peddling secrets that I, I really I thought was like bad pornography, you know. Yeah. But that had turned in, what had started as a real feeling it turned into a dogma, and I was aware of that. So I went in this Casamount class, and I really tried to be open minded, and it worked most of the time. One time he had a these series of paintings that his friend had done that were like socks hanging on a canvas. And I was just, I can't do it, man. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> I want to be open-minded. And Kostenbaum was a brilliant guy, so he was able to explain everything that was going on. I was like, nah, was, there's socks. I, I can't. I can't do it. I have my limits, you know. But uh, one of the, the works he introduced me to was this uh, Kandinsky point and line and plane, which I found really um, fascinating and... By the way, before yeah. before you, you go sure. to that, I want to read a, a quick quote from the, in, the translator to the the, um, the Kandinsky that I read, Michael Sadler, yes, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, he says this: "It's no common thing to find an artist who, even if he is willing to try, is capable of expressing his aims and ideals with any clearness and moderation. 
Some people will say that any such capacity is a flaw in the perfect artist, who should find his expression in line and color and leave the multitude to grope its way unaided towards comprehension. This attitude is a relic of the days when l'art pour l'art was the latest battle cry, when eccentricity of manner and irregularity of life were more important than any talent to the would-be artist, when everyone except oneself was bourgeois. Which, um, <laughs> I don't know, I rather liked. Yeah. Um, and I I, I feel like, um, you know, it's not that you have to take everything that Kandinsky says about what he's doing um, as as gospel, but I actually found that it, uh, I already liked Kandinsky quite a bit, and I found that uh, that reading him made me appreciate what he was doing much more. And so, it didn't it didn't feel yeah. tacked on or added. Right. It felt like it was, no, this is, you know, this no. is very clearly integral to what you're doing. Yeah, and what he's doing in this book in particular is trying to expound a theory of spiritual form, of of the spirit of form, trying to enunciate the spiritual quality, the integrated integrated moral aesthetic quality of the the pieces that make up painting, of the the line, the the color the composition, how all of this fits together into a kind of spiritual truth. And I'll just read a couple of things from this, and I think uh, they're interesting in their own right, and you'll also hear some resonances of the Zamyatin here from the very beginning on the geometric point. The geometric point is an invisible thing. Therefore, it must be defined as an incorporeal thing. Considered in terms of substance, it equals zero. Hidden in this zero, however, are various attributes which are human in nature. We think of this zero, the geometric point, in relation to the greatest possible brevity, i.e., to the highest degree of restraint which nevertheless speaks. I won't even try to explain what that means exactly. I think it's obviously fairly gnomic, but you get the point. All right, one more thing on composition. The action of the force on the given material brings life into the material, which expresses itself in tensions. The tensions, for their part, permit the inner nature of the element to be expressed. An element is the objective result of the action of the force on the material. The line is the clearest and simplest case of this creative process which always takes place in exact obedience to law and therefore allows and requires an exact law-abiding application. Thus, a composition is nothing other than an exact law-abiding organization of the vital forces which, in the form of tensions, are shut up within the elements." So this is the law of the vital forces of the elements, which is exact and unabridgeable and relates to, you know, like vibrating quantum strings of the universe in a spiritual sense or some such. (laughs) That was incomprehensible. (laughs) Me or Kandinsky? Kandinsky. I'm glad I read the spiritual in art and not that one. (laughs) No, no, no. This book is really good. I mean, I, it doesn't work well in excerpts, perhaps. Really good is also perhaps uh, not technically accurate, but it's very interesting. <laughs> really good is not technically accurate. Well, the paintings are fantastic, and uh, I do suggest people check them out. Yeah. Um, all right. So 
I think maybe let's um and just say next podcast is going to be in case you want to read ahead. Uh, and you can find this online. The the manifesto is going to be Alastair McIntyre's 1983 uh, lecture, Is Patriotism a Virtue? Uh, sorry, 1984 lecture. And then the art is going to be a public occasion actually, um, the burial of the unknown soldier on November 11th, uh, 1921 uh, after World War One. Just to clarify, a public occasion is not the title of a work of art. It's uh, it's an event. It's the burial yeah. of the unknown soldier. So some uh, sometimes we're going to deviate from the painting, movie, short story script. A, a public ceremony is, yeah. is is a work of art in its own right. And um, for that, we're going to be borrowing very heavily from a chapter of G.I. Messiahs by Jonathan Ebel, which is a generally fa- fantastic book in case anybody wants to check that out. All right. On that note. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast. Phil and I have been really heartened and pleased with the response so far. Hop on over to Facebook and check us out there where uh, we really will get better at posting the links to art that we mention in the episodes and where we hope you'll be able to give us some feedback. Let us know if there are manifestos you want us to talk about in the future. And while you're at it, go to iTunes and give us a rating there.